0: Joining me on the show today is stand up comic and writer Deliso Chaponda. Deliso is best known for being a stand up comedian who's toured the UK twice, been on shows such as QI, and was Amanda Holden's golden buzzer on Britain's Got Talent. Deliso also does a lot of writing work, writing his own novel, children's books, and work on BBC4. Deliso is one of the most natural funniest people i've met and has been on the list of guests i want on the podcast for such a long time and now he's on the show this know. is the Schofield stories podcast hosted by me Carl Schofield. sensational guests join me on the show to share their stories Speaking about challenges, hardships and successes, we are unmasking mental health purely by talking. You're listening to the Schofield Stories. Let's get started. I was just saying off camera how excited I am for this episode. So without further ado, Delito Chaponda, welcome to the show.
1: Great. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here.
0: That's no problem. So you're probably best known for being a stand-up comedian. But little do people know, you do a lot else. You do do a lot else. You're a writer. You write novels, children's books, and even for Radio 4.
1: Yes, initially. So what the genesis of all of my writing was, is when I was a little kid, I used to read big fat science fiction books and big fat fantasy books, sort of Lord of the Rings and Isaac Asimov and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to write uh, these and I also wanted to write serious literature. I wanted to be like, you know, Woleh Shoyinka. I wanted to write stuff which explores the human condition but somehow I was best at humor. Anytime I put humor into my short stories that was what people responded to a lot And then in university, I discovered comedy. Uh, I'd never seen stand-up comedy. I mean, I'd seen Eddie Murphy's Raw and Delirious, but I didn't know it was an art in itself. I thought it was just that actor I liked doing a one-man play. And so it blew my mind. And once I did it, it it took over, it took over. And it uh, initially was the secondary and the fiction was the primary, but now they've switched places.
0: So when did that switch take place? When did you go from comedy as something you enjoyed to something you wanted to do?
1: Okay, I'll admit it was not for the most noble reasons. It was for pure shallowness and ego, right? This is actually the thing, is that I love writing fiction. I'm probably best at writing fiction. But when you are, I'll, I'll answer that question again, is it? The reason I got more into comedy, I have to admit, was purely shallow. It was purely ego, right? Because um, when you write fiction, it's probably what I'm best at, but it's a very lonely thing. It's a thing you do alone. And maybe like a month later, someone will message you, I love this story. But stand-up comedy, you're getting instant validation. People clapping, people cheering, and... Also, if you're a university student, it, it definitely helps with the, the sex life. Right? <laughs> you're, you're suddenly the cool kid. You're suddenly the admired kid. And I was just having a ball of the time. And when I actually, if I'm honest, at the beginning of my comedy, um, sort of, ex- I was what, 22 or something like that? And what I was more interested in was the life of it, you know, the hanging out and the flirting with people and the people partying afterwards. It was the whole life of it that lured me over, not so much the artistic part of it. And then gradually, as I did it longer, I started finding ways to express what I really believe in the joke. But the first few years, it was just because it it made me cool. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, that is really interesting so at the times when you were doing comedy for the social side of things did you ever expect to take it further or were you purely doing it for the lifestyle
1: at the time at the time i did not take it seriously at all and i actually think i used to look down on it in a way because when people ask me oh are you a comedian i'd be like i'm a writer I'm a writer. I just (laughs) happened to do some of this comedy on the side. And I never took it seriously. But also, I didn't really understand what could be done with comedy, right? All I did was I went to these nightclubs where people were mostly doing dick jokes. It wasn't like I thought this is a high form of art. I thought it was like this kind of like nonsense. And then gradually, as I got more into it, I started to see people who used comedy for more than just... A shallow few gags, right? I, I, I started yeah. discovering just through osmosis from other people talking about it. Oh, people saying, hey, you should check out uh, George Carlin. Hey, you should check out Richard Pryor. Hey, you should check out Billy Connolly. And then you start seeing that, oh, it's an art. It's not just what I thought it was. It's just, just standing up, saying a few silly things and making people laugh.
0: So there is a lot more to it. And is that something you think that Not a lot of people realize, even fans of stand-up comedy.
1: Yes, because I actually think it's you know the way that there are different genres of most things. There's a thriller, and there is so so if it's books, right? You've got Stephen King, you've got Salman Rushdie, and you've got uh, you know um, Doctor Seuss, and no one would say that they are doing the same thing. You understand that one is entertainment, one is literary, and one is children's. For some reason, for comedy, people just kind of all stick it all together, right? And Hmm. so we're meant to think that, you know, uh, I forgot the name of this guy. (laughs) We're meant to think jackass, like sticking a, a gerbil up his bum or something is the same art as somebody plunging into the depth of being molested as a child and you're like these are not the same things so there's so many different kinds of comedy but they're all put under the same umbrella and when i started i very much was putting oh you know uh oh i'm big very dirty i don't know if that's okay on your podcast oh that's fine (laughs) yes say whatever yeah i'm very much putting uh, when i started out i was very much putting like knob gags and like you know your mama jokes in the same like umbrella as comedy that does a lot more than that comedy that looks at politics and looks at the things we struggle with and then i gradually realized that oh you can do those things i want to do in the novels you can do them on stage was that a
0: hard transition because i think there's a difference between when you write something that's funny and when you actually perform something written i think trying to get that mix can be a challenge for some comedian so how do you find that transition from the page to the stage really
1: well for me actually it was weird I think part of the problem for me is that comedy was always easy right I can always make people laugh right if I'm in a room I don't know if it's my face my (laughs) high-pitched voice I have been built for comedy if you were making a Lego comedian you'd come out with me like little children laugh at me when I've not said anything, there's something about my face, my eyes, there's just giggles, right? Mm -hmm. So when I started out, I was getting laughter no matter what I was doing, right? And that can be very misleading because I wasn't necessarily doing interesting stuff, right? I wasn't doing stuff that was worth anything, but I was getting laughs. So I thought I was a good comedian, right? And then as I went on, I started to see people who were much better than me who were talking about stuff which you talk about with your friends later i remember we were having an argument about gun control and people brought up a thing which chris rock had said as a joke in an actual discussion right and yeah. then i started to say oh you can be you can say something so good in comedy that it becomes part of the actual discussion people it re- goes into people's mind and that's when i started trying to be, the big turning point was probably actually Life is Beautiful. Have you ever watched Life is Beautiful?
0: No, I haven't, no.
1: Okay, if you haven't watched it, it's um, a movie by Roberto Benigni, right? And it won all these Oscars and it's a comedy. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen, but it's set in a concentration camp, right? I can't expect that. Yes, exactly. It's about a father who is put in a concentration camp with his little boy and he makes it his entire job to keep his child innocent. And so he's making him laugh. He's convincing him that it's all a game and it's absolutely astonishing. And when you see that, you're like, you can do that with humor. What the hell, what am I wasting my time with? You know, doing jokes about trying to have sex with people. (laughs) <laughs> first few years that's all it was <laughs> all i talked about was look, like, you know you, you're a student it's it's pretty shallow subject yeah. and then i started trying to get to more important things things i care about this was probably around 2003 something like that probably when i 2004 i hadn't been going that long but that was when i started trying to write about things which meant a lot to me i started watching more comedy and i think i became a I became a better comedian in those years.
0: So would you say it was in those years that you actually called yourself a stand-up comedian, or did you call yourself one earlier? Is there like a defining moment that you thought, "I am a comedian now"? Or
1: yeah, I think it was around two thousand four. It was once I started making money from comedy, yeah. and uh, also it was when I realized I was good. Right. So like mm-hmm. I, um, I got on. A just for laughs television show. Just doing three minutes or something. But I was like, wow, this is I'm I'm like with the professionals here. I'm I'm actually I'm actually good. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And also it was when people who I admired, like um Barry Humphreys, mm-hmm. where I was like, Oh, you're really funny, right? And I was working with all these people who are like, You're you're famous and you think I'm funny. And it was just a kind of awakening that the thing which I'd taken for granted because I'd always been a bit wacky and a bit funny was I was better at it than a lot of people, right? And it's just like knowing you're good at something makes you work harder at it. Yeah, You know, Well, for me personally, because when you just think, oh, oh I'm actually have a terrible flaw in that mm-hmm. I need to be very good at something. So when I was in high school, I was very into running. And I was on the high school team. I was a long distance runner and I was all about the running. And then I went to university and I was like, oh, let me go to the running. And this was Canada McGill University. And suddenly I was paired with people who are at Olympic level. You're you're real runners. And I went from being a good runner to being way at the back and to be the person who people were clapping in at the end, saying, oh, keep going, boy, keep going. And I never went back. I, I just couldn't. I wasn't the sort of person who could strive when you're the worst. Yeah. So knowing that I was good made me say, okay, I need to go. This is, I I could really do something with this. And then I started living and breathing comedy and analysing it, and watching loads of it and just being like, okay, I guess this is what I was put here to do.
0: Absolutely. So is it a lot about watching other comedians, observing comedy and then trying to just you know, get on as many stand-up circuits, open mics as you can, just to try and improve yourself? Or is there any additional ways?
1: No, I think it's actually mainly just trying a lot of different things in what you're doing, right? right. So so it was more like I, I would try all the different kinds of comedy. I did funny poems. I did funny, like, uh, I talked about politics. Then I tried love. I tried... Talking about family, I tried all different methods. I even used to do a little game. Like, if I performed with three people, I don't do this anymore, but this was early on. If I performed Mm -hmm. with three people, when I went home, I'd try to write a joke in each of their styles. Right. And it was just sort of like I was feeling like I need to get all of the tools and muscles necessary to be a comedian. So, anytime I watched comedians, even if I was watching a famous comedian, I'll try to think, Okay, how could I make that person's joke better? And it was but I was also a student. You gotta understand, I was like a literary student. So I was applying what I was doing in classes with James Joyce now to comedy. Yeah.
0: So would you say that helped having that? I think
1: literacy? it helped. Now, yeah. now I have friends who think I'm crazy. So I've got a friend, Lois Ogola, very funny comedian right? And he, he can't stand it, right? He's like, <laughs> you, 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 think, you think about this comedy too much. You, you, it's, you don't think, you just do it. Like there are some people who think it's meant to be an instinct. You don't analyze what you're doing and you just go with the heart and the funny will come out. But I'm someone who breaks it down, writes a joke and breaks it up into little pieces of a jigsaw and then tries to put it back together and make it better. And both approaches work. It's just mine is the analytical, how can I make it better?
0: Yeah, and obviously that approach works for you because every comedian had a slightly different style or a different version of events, maybe.
1: Yes, very much so, very much so.
0: So how supportive were your friends and family in your journey into comedy and even up to toe today?
1: So it's a mixture. So first of all, my family, if I say my parents, they were initially horrified because I was the most academic kid in in a family of academics. All my family were overachievers academically. Mm -hmm. And then I was getting better grades. So my family, they'd all got juiced up and ready for Deliso is going to be the one. He is going to be the the, the one who becomes a nuclear physicist or something. They were all so excited. And then I dashed all of their dreams by saying, forget all that, right? I love comedy, right? But interestingly, I actually think it's because I'd always been Mr. Academic, not having fun with my friends, when everyone's partying at school, I'm working, that when I suddenly entered this cool, fun world of comedy, I was so enamored of it, right? Because I was suddenly partying and doing the things which people were doing when I was younger and I was sitting being bookish. But my family thought I was throwing away a beautiful future, right? And so they were like, "There was an intervention. They contacted one of my uncles who tried to be a poet when he was young and told him to call me. And he called me and told me about his failure. (laughs) (laughs) It it was like a whole family while or or also even the ones who were more reasonable like my brothers. So my brother supported me but they all wanted it to be a backup plan, right?
0: Right, yeah.
1: They, they, They would even tell me the story of people like John Grisham, like John Grisham became a lawyer, right? And while being a lawyer in his time off, he wrote novels That's the way you do it, right? You get the proper good earning job on the side, you do it and maybe you get successful, right? But I was very much believing, and I still say this to this day, you can do that, but really you've got to throw, if you really, really want to be a success, you've got to just throw all the dice in there because the amount of time I can spend writing scripts and comedy is not something you can do on the side
0: yeah, so you kind of have to dedicate.
1: you have to you yeah. have to. I mean, like I, within reason, you you don't you don't you know set yourself up to be a, a, a homeless person, right? But at the yeah. same time you uh, you've got to risk and you can't think of it as a backup plan. And if anything, I started thinking of my computer programming, which I was studying in the literas, I was studying that was the backup plan. right. So I was right. like, okay, yeah. if if for five years I try to be a comedian, and I, I'm still not getting paid. I'm having more, people aren't laughing at me. If I'm bad, I will go to the backup plan. But this is now plan A, right? Yeah. And um, there, there were a few moments when I, I almost said, okay, forget the comedy. I'm going to go back to plan B. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm actually UK, my big break was uh, Prince Got Talent. I yeah. went to audition for it when I was in almost peak frustration and I was considering that it's not too late to go back to one of my plan Bs because I'd been a comedian for many years and I was doing really well in terms of like, people would always laugh at me, but I couldn't break television or radio or anything like that. And it was just sort of like, I I don't necessarily wanna just be getting paid, you know, a hundred quid a night for the rest of my life. This is not what, this is not what I, aimed I could still go finish a degree and get a normal job but it was just one of my last ditch well let me try this and it it worked it worked.
0: It absolutely worked but up until that point when you were going through these periods of frustration how was it was obviously on stage you're making people laugh but then in your own head you're starting to have you're trying to question whether you're going to carry on.
1: It took Quite a lot of yours because I love it, right? I love performing. It's the greatest feeling. If you talk to me the hour before I go on stage to two, three hours after it, I am the happiest person. Hmm. The problem is that's the experience of it. Then the rest of the time, you've got the practicality of, I can't pay my rent or, oh no, I've, I've got, you know, I Just that kind of hard reality that until you become a success, it's not a very well-paying job, right? And you you'll visit your brother in a nice house with a fancy car, and you're living like a student at the age of thirty. Do you know? It like it, it was just one of those things where it was more that I was saying that I love this, this is my joy, but is it irresponsible for me to try and live off this when this is the most I can achieve? So that started to happen more and more, even though I loved doing it and I was having a ball doing it, they just kind of practical, did I make a bad decision? Well, I, I did things like I would go for an audition and I blew the roof off and I thought I had it. And then my agent got told, oh, um, we can't really use him this season. He clashes with someone else who's been on. And it turned out that that season they'd had another African person and I guess they felt they can't have more than one African person on this television show, even though it was different episodes. That sort of stuff started to frustrate me a lot. Yeah. And I started thinking um, like Gina Yashire, brilliant comedian. She was always telling me that, you know, you need to move to America or something because maybe you can't get any further here. So that sort of career stuff started getting in the way and depressing me, even though I was becoming a better comedian. And um, I'm glad I didn't stop, though, because now, it, well, not now because of COVID, but now, pre-COVID, it was great! I was doing so well! <laughs> yeah,
0: you definitely were. And something you touched upon then were how you did well in the audition, but then were told that you already clashed. Because obviously, in the news, there's been a lot at the moment about how it's been the not, not sort of segregation in comedy with only white men. You know, yes. you can't have more than one woman on a panel show, and in your case, you can't have more than one African comedian. How do you find that? But well, it does seem to be an overpowering amount of middle-class, white, British, heterosexual males. If now, anything.
1: I will say that I think it can be overstated because there are many, 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 many different things about you that may cause you to be accepted or to be rejected, right? Right, yeah. So. If you are black, but you are like stunning, yeah. right? <laughs> if you look like Michael B. Jordan, that may help. So it's it's race is one of the things, but there's also other ways in which we judge people, right? Such as which shouldn't have anything to do with it, like how attractive is a person, um, what's their accent. There's so many things that counter you. So there are times when I didn't get a job, but I can't say that I didn't get it because of my race, because yeah. I might have not have got it because, oh, I'm just not good looking enough, or I might not have got it because, oh, they have some other, th- there's so many different things, but yes, being Black doesn't help, <laughs> it doesn't yeah. make it easier, <laughs> right, yeah. but I don't think it's the only reason why uh, that holds you back, but it it definitely doesn't help, and it's, really frustrating, one of the big things which I'm trying to write about now in the show I'm writing now is I feel like, why is it that we are more defined in society by the things, the groups we were born into than the groups we choose, right? Yeah. So like, if if you think about what society sees me as, they see me as black male, right? Uh, they might mention my, my religion, things which I was born into, right? And then the the groups I've chosen, like I love science fiction, I'm into consensual spanking, all this yeah. sort of stuff, right? That's yeah. the joke of it. But I'm just saying that it's like you find out more by looking at the the groups you've chosen. And so I do often think that uh, it's changing. But a lot of the shows used to be very hung up on. Uh, first they were, first they were all white, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Then they were told, okay, you need to have at least one black person, or at least one ethnic person, or at least one woman per week, right? And -hmm. they didn't take that to mean diversify. They took that to mean, we need to have only one, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You can have two, you know what I mean? Like there's no, so it's that kind of thing where it's been a problem, but at the same time, certain channels are, are doing a lot. Like my radio show is on Radio 4. And yeah. Radio 4 has made a very big uh effort to be really diverse. And it is. They're, they're like three or four friends of mine. Ishan Akbar has a, a radio show. A bunch of people have ra- so radio's doing it. It's just radio small money. It's when yeah. big money starts doing that, you'll feel like. Um, but it's, it's changing. I I'm I'm definitely of the the generation. It's funny because I live with someone who is like all activisty. I'm of the generation which doesn't really believe you yell at it and try to change it. It's that the world's yeah. unfair. How do you get through it? How do you win in this unfair world? Right? A yeah. lot of people are like, "Oh, you need to pressure the, the 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 you need to pressure them until they have more." My brain says, "How do I be the one black person?" Okay? They only got to get one. How am yeah. I that one one? And um It's really funny because I was talking to my father about this. When I was a kid, they never, ever, ever would have made us think that the world was fair. In fact, they would be like, no, the world is fair. It's not fair. The world's not fair. You're Black. You're African. It's not fair. So you cannot get a B or a C. You need to have an A plus because that is the only way you, because of the prejudice, are going to get through this. And so that was what I've grown up with, not the let's make the world change, but how do I adapt in this unfair world?
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think some people will have the misconception that you will be all the activist, I must change, I must fight for change, because of the the groups you were automatically put into, as you said.
1: Yes, and I also think that it's very much that we, we, I was brought up by prag, pragmatists, I'm a pragmatist, right? Okay. Now, maybe I'm just too pessimistic, but I don't believe the world can change. There can be small increments, but you cannot change systemic oppression. You cannot change, you can't unlearn what assumptions people have. I can talk to someone who's 70, who thinks I'm inferior for 10 days, and what? I won't persuade them. So I think often, I'm like, okay, more power for you. You try to change the world, but I don't think they're going to succeed. So I think, how can I make the best strides for myself, for my family, for my friends in this unfair world?
0: Yeah, that definitely makes sense. So would you say that sometimes people will lose track of what they want to do by focusing on trying to change the world instead maybe
1: i I, look when i was in my 20s i went to protests right i i protested up the wazoo and i I, and i just think that that idealism is a young man's game all right it's 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 you know we protested the iraq war boom they still did it right we protested um you know doctors getting, uh, what was this, pensions, they still did. It's that you start to realize that we can yell and scream and other than on social media, social media you're validated, but other than on social media, nobody seems to care, right? There's so many things where people get hot and bothered about. Now I'm not saying that I don't believe in aspiring to change the world. And I think it's happened but I think it happens in increments, right? It's much better to be a minority now than it was 50 years ago. Oh, it's much better to be Black, it's much better if you're trans, it's much better if you're gay, it's black. But whatever minority group you're in, it's probably better now than it was 50 years ago. But it's not ideal, right? Oh no, not at all. And there are people who can, you know, put their entire life into trying to move the dial. But for me... I'm like, the dial isn't moving far enough, so I'm just going to look at the system and think, how can I game the system? It's rigged, yeah. but I can be one of the winners.
0: Yeah, and that links back to what you said earlier about how you always want to, to, to be the, the, the top of something, how you want to be yes. the best, run there, the best comedian. So it does, that is a common theme, you could say, in your life,
1: I'm being very, I'm being very honest. I'm like, oh no, I'm being way too honest in this chat because it's, it's just that thing. I think it's cause it's stuff I've been realizing recently where I'm like, why aren't I as idealistic as some of my friends? And I think it's just because I'm like, well, I I, I, I don't think it's gonna change anything. Like I, I, I went to the Manchester Black Lives Matter demonstrations because a friend of mine was there. I wouldn't have gone because I'm like, look, I believe I believe they're right, but I don't believe it's going to change anything. We have we have these demonstrations once every few years, and then two years later they kill someone else, and then we have another. So, I'm like nothing changes, and maybe I'm just too beaten, but I think things don't change unless we make the change ourselves. I will say that is where my idealism is. Like so, when I I put on a radio play, I cast. Like, it, it was the brownest play there's ever been. Yeah. <laughs> like, <literally, laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. like, you know, no, no. So I, I do do things. So I'm not saying, like, I'm a laissez-faire, let it be. But I just don't believe that protesting and um yelling how unfair it is is going to change anything. Yeah. So what
0: you could say is, because you're that one African comedian, you're that one black comedian, you can use that to your advantage.
1: Yes, and also I think, now that I think about it, like my entire radio show, Citizen of Nowhere, is all about colonialism. It's about uh, racism. It's about um, immigration problems. It's all about like these issues. And so I do talk about them a lot, right? I do talk about them a lot, but it's almost like I feel like you put out this art and you're throwing stones into the water and it's causing ripples. And I think that that has an effect, right? But I don't think it has... I don't think I can control the effect.
0: Yeah, but it still has an effect nevertheless. Yeah. Yeah, so back onto your story, your career. Can yeah. we just talk about how 2017 was oh. your...
1: Yes, that was the, the yes. turn. That was the best year.
0: Yeah, so when you um, entered Britain's Got Talent, was it as you said, your last chance, you thought, if, if I don't do well here, I'm going to go back to finish off my computing degree and all that? Or?
1: Now, I'll tell you it's interesting. That's probably disingenuous because that would be an occasional thought, but I don't really think I would have. Do you know yeah. when you have moments of doubt? Oh, absolutely. You're like, I'm going to give up tomorrow. So I had a lot of those, but I never would have. And I actually think if I hadn't done well in Briscoe I would have continued being grumpy and then I would have tried something else and I would have, I, I don't think I would have given up, but I would have had a lot of moments where I want to give up. Right. Yeah. And, uh, or I'm just frustrated by, I also I was, I was giving into envy. I always think envy is a very bad, dumb kind of thing to um, engage in because you need to just be focused on your success or failure. It's very easy to look at other people's and think, oh, I'm more talented than him. It's like, are you really? Do you know that? Do you know that people prefer you to them? How do you know? You know what I mean? Like, there's you don't know what they've done to get their success. But I was giving into envy and and what what I mean was there was a danger it was making me a person I didn't like, not being oh, successful. Yeah. And when I did it, it was I was still holding on to myself and the delight because I'm a person who loves comedy but it was in danger of shifting because there are some older comics you hear run into once in a while who you're like, you start thinking, why are you even a comedian? You hate it. You hate it now. You resent it so much because you never got that break. So I did it at that sort of turning point where sometimes I was stressed out. Sometimes I was envious and I did it like not expecting a lot, actually. I did it expecting to get just more corporate shows. Because yeah. I was like, if I have a good clip from it, I can use that to get you know, one or two more corporate shows and that'll be enough to push me to being financially stable. So that I really went in with that. I didn't expect like the golden buzzer and like just life-changing moment. And now actually it's it's like I have two careers, the career before and the career after.
0: So when you actually auditioned and you performed, and then, well, on that audition on the, on the stage, you could say that Amanda Holden, President of Golden Buzzer, was something you put on your CV as well. Yes. How was that feel? Yes. For
1: you? No. No. It, it. was. It was. I. I couldn't believe what was happening because I'd watched the show a lot. I'd watched yeah. all the clips online, and and I went in thinking that's something that would never happen to me because it happens to, you know, a wonder who's seven years old who sings opera or something it's usually somebody who does something nobody can do if you you know can sword swallow or something yeah i know i'm a good comedian but to me a comedian is a very normal talent because everybody's a bit funny right yeah so never in my wildest dreams did i expect that was going to happen so it was it was astonishing it was astonishing i couldn't sleep that night i was so excited
0: but I can only imagine after you said, when you finish performing normally, you're static for the next few hours. So that must have been on a whole new level after oh, being recognised like that. It was a
1: whole new level. I was insufferable. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing.
0: And then, How, how was it being in the competition? Because obviously you got all the way to the final, semi-finals and all that. What was it like being a part of the show, performing again on primetime it was, TV?
1: It was, it, this is a, probably a cliche, but it was like that kind of Cinderella going to the ball. Like yeah. I was, they put it's, it's little things. It's not just the performance. It's that they've put you in a five star hotel. And when my 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 parents came over from Malawi, they treated them really well. And you're being interviewed by people, and little kids are approaching you on the street saying you're that guy. And it's like it's it's you are suddenly in this fairy tale. not it is dangerous. Okay, this yeah. is what I tell to all of my friends who do, um, who do it since I've done it, right? Is that you are extremely famous for around six months. That's the nature of reality shows. Then it's on to the next guy right now. Yeah. You can still in that six month. I've still changed my I'm still more well known than I was before. I've got an audience, but I will never. Well, unless I do something like get in a movie. I'll never be as famous as I was for those first six months. It was bonkers. And it was so much fun. It was so much fun. I always hear people complaining. I think they feel they have to say, oh, you know, it's terrible. You lose your privacy. It's so much fun being famous. (laughs) 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 Maybe you're not meant to say, but it's so much fun. But um, it was great. And then also it was that thing. It was a lot of stress. It was a lot of stress because they argue with you about your jokes. Also like people expecting way too much. My parents flew over telling me we're coming to see you win and stuff like that. So there's a lot of pressure and so on, but at the same time, it, it was, it was wonderful fun.
0: Was it like trying to get um, some material ready for the semi final performances? Because I'm assuming it's a shorter amount of time than you would normally Very have. Very short amount of time, but yeah.
1: I had been a comedian for over 10 years at that point. Yeah. Right. And It's very funny that I'll actually give... I think the reason I did so well was because of a chain of clubs called Junglers, okay? Right, yeah. I don't know if you remember Junglers. They were a comedy chain of clubs across the UK, and they notoriously were very tough to play because the people went there to party. So everyone was drunk. There were hen parties. There were stag dudes. They were rough, And the way I survived those gigs is I came up with a streamlined set where laughs came fast and heavy every 20 seconds. No one's got a chance to be distracted. Everything, I'm just hammering them, hammering them, hammering them and dealing with this chaos, right? And I mainly did those clubs, right? Uh, For a long time. they were the clubs, the best paid clubs, which hired me regularly, right? And having to be good at dealing with a raving bunch of drunk people meant that the I had the kind of jokes, now of course I had to take out the dirty ones, but yeah. I had the kind of quick fire jokes that always work, that can deal with like a very strange situation. So really, I just looked at my, my the sets which I used in Rowdy Rooms, took out the dirty bits, and that was what I used for the semi-final and the initial audition. The final was a different case altogether because they they did, <laughs> we we argued a lot about what jokes I could do. But I understand it's because they realized that I might win and yeah. they wouldn't want me to win while doing something controversial.
0: Yes, understandable. If we could quickly talk about those clubs, what was it yes. like when you first started performing in these rowdy, rough places? Is it? It's when rare. when
1: I first started, I did okay. Now, this is what I'm saying. Like, I've always been funny. I'm one of yeah. the people who I, I'll have like two bad gigs a year, right? You know, what I mean, like, I I'm always fun, but I there's levels of there's a time when you make people laugh. There's a time when you make people laugh till they're falling off their chairs. And there's a time when they want to carry you off as a hero, right? So when I started, I was being funny, but I was just okay. But because I was doing them a lot, I was changing my set to work for them, right? And uh, it's been very interesting because I've had to change from being a sprinter to a long distance runner in that I was... I had perfected doing 20 minutes, right? I had a, yeah. a, like my first joke was, my first big laugh was, uh, I did it on the BGT. It, it was 10 seconds in. It was like, wow, this is crazy. You know, 200 years ago, this would have been an auction. Because <laughs> yeah, I remember these, that. Yeah. These were big white crowds, right? But what was funny was I was getting that not even 10 seconds, like seven seconds in. I've usually got big round of applause, right? Yeah. So it's that thing where I had built my set to 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 survive rowdy people by shocking them immediately and getting their attention immediately. I don't know if, like, you know about gong shows, right? Where mm. where people try to perform, and if they're bad, they get gonged. On. Oh so yes, yeah. I had the same kind of mentality. I had seen and I'd had a few experiences where it went badly. And I was like, I can't give them the chance. I can't even give them a moment to dislike me. I have to hit them with a joke every 20 seconds.
0: As much as I don't want to ask this, what's no, it don't. like when things go a bit wrong, when you have bad gigs, or what sort of happens, do and maybe f- for you afterwards as well?
1: It's going to happen. It's going to happen, yeah. right? It's, but it's like all failure, right? All failure feels bad. I don't care what you do. If you work at a restaurant that day when you, uh, you know, no one comes in, or or you piss off your boss, feels terrible. Failure feels terrible. And so when you have a bad gig, right? Like I, i st- you never don't not have them, right? I, yeah. I Seinfeld will still have the occasional bad gig. You feel terrible. It's so depressing, right? And um. Oh, that whole evening, I will be depressed and I'll just be upset. And I will also be overanalyzing what I did. What could I have changed? What could I have done? Oh, I shouldn't have talked to that guy. Oh, I should have opened on this joke. Oh, I shouldn't have done this. And it just punishes you for a few hours. But then I think by the next morning, you have to move on. Right? Yeah. Do you know what I mean like you? You literally can feel bad about it and overanalyze it. But there's a point where you have to say, "Well, now if it happened many, many, many days in succession, that would be a different thing altogether." But yeah. because it happens once in a while, um, it's also it's it's. I think it's made me a better comedian because anytime I have a bad performance, I go home and I'm thinking w- w- if I have no joke which could have got me out of that hole can I write that joke? So, for example, yeah. the first time in Canada, I performed for older people at a golf club. I did terrible with my university tales of trying to have yeah. sex, stuff like that. And so I went home and I was like, okay, if I had to make my dad laugh, what would I talk about? And then I wrote that for that kind of audience. So the same thing now, like the first time I had kid, did kids and I struggled. I was like, yeah. okay, how do I make little kids laugh? Let me Go home and write some stuff which would make my niece laugh, and that sort of thing. It's like it's really punishing, but it's also oh, I hate it. I I hate bad gigs. It's it's like my worst thing. But I also use it as a way to to get a bit better.
0: Yeah, so it's still a learning curve. But what's some of the responses you've had doing bad gigs? Is it tackling oh, Is it literally oh, silence? No, 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 or?
1: no. I did one. I did one in Canada where it was for university and I was saying stuff they considered offensive. I did a joke, uh, which I still think was pretty harmless, about uh, a reality show like Survivor called Fanatic, where we get a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses, a couple of Mormons and a couple of members of ISIS and put them in a house together, (laughs) starve them, and then every morning give them bacon and booze. Right? That's (laughs) a harmless, ridiculous joke. Also, I'm not talking about normal religion. I'm talking about the extremists. Yeah, yeah, extremes, yeah. But to this university people who are watching, some of them were like, this is religious intolerance. And they started booing and saying, who are you to say that? Who are you to say that? And one of them walked up on stage, grabbed the mic from me. And I was chased off (laughs) stage.
0: Literally chased off stage.
1: I was chased off stage. And, and uh, you know, the, the things like, which have happened, like the worst feeling actually, though, isn't even that. The worst feeling happened at a f- the Frog and Bucket in Manchester. Yeah, he's
0: cute about, about, yeah.
1: And I did a show where I might as well not have been stay- on stage. It was just quiet. Mm-hmm. I'd rather a boot to deathly quiet. Oh, yeah. I don't know what's going on. You're like, this just, they just don't care. It was really unsettling so I've had bad gigs we've all had bad gigs and in fact there's if you ever go into a green room of comedians all you'll ever hear is the bad gig stories right because yeah. nobody wants to hear about your good gig right every among comedians you want to hear about their atrocious gig because it's that suffering is entertaining and it it kind of bonds you
0: yeah I can't Imagine that. It's the only kind of competition of who's had the worst gig story.
1: Yes, but it's, yes, it's the worst. It's the the best story about having a bad gig. Yes, yes. Because (laughs) the person who's had the worst gig is probably just a bad comedian, right? Yeah. But that's not an interesting story. The best story is when someone who's brilliant has had a terrible gig and then with their storytelling talent, they tell you about it because they make it more funny than it was. So if Chris Rock is talking about his bad gig, he's going to make it so funny. So I think some of it isn't that. It's that it's a universal bad experience, but it's also how well it's told.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And when we talk about how well things are told, how will you describe your comedy now? Would you say you're more observational? Is it story about think, yourself? I, 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 not really sure even think, define it, but
1: yes, I think the interesting thing about me is maybe because I was so analytic about comedy, I'm a very jack of all trades, master of none kind of comedian. In that, I use many different comedy th- like styles, yeah, baked into my style, right? So I've probably universally... The most universal thing about my style is the subject matter is often politics or personal growth and things like that. But in it, I'll do a few one-liners, I'll tell a few stories, there'll be a few observations, there'll be a sketch. Like my last one-man show, I read a letter, Uh, I might throw in a poem, I do, it's kind of like a very, I've studied all the comedy and I'm going to use all the comedy to get across what I want to say. Yeah.
0: As, yeah. That's what I was. That's why I asked, because with some comedians, it's very easy to...
1: Oh, yeah, up, like Jimmy you know, Carr, yeah. one-liners, you know. Exactly. Billy really Connolly, yeah. stories, you know. Um, Seinfeld, observations, you know. But I kind of do a bit of each of them as I go on my way through. And it's, again, it's because I... Um, I think it's because early on, I kind of felt like comedy is really good when you don't know what's going to come next.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's true.
1: I've watched seven one-liners. I know the next thing is going to be a one-liner. But if a guy does a one-liner and another one-liner, and then suddenly he's in a story, I just kind of find it's it's interesting. It makes it 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 kind of yeah.
0: But that's sort of the premise of telling a joke, isn't it? You want the audience to assume something or make an assumption, then you just flip that on its head. So it's almost you're doing that through the act of comedy as well, not just what you're saying, but the. Where you're saying it, if that makes sense.
1: Yes, I mean, and to get really geeky, even things like my voice—I I don't understand comedians who do their whole set in the same voice. Like you've got to slow down and say a bit, a bit lower, and then you've got to get excited, and another bit—you've got, you've got to surprise them with everything. But yeah, again, I, I watch too much comedy. <laughs> <No, no>, I, <I'm,
0: laughs> yeah. I feel like I'm in the same boat. because when you're giving these examples, my name, my head is being full of names of comedians who are like this, so I'll happily be a comedy nerd with you.
1: Yes, exactly. There's, oh, I love I love people who they use, like, their body. They, they use, like, Lee Evans is flailing about. Yeah. His body is as much a part of his jokes as the things he says. And and so, again, I watched that, and I used to think, okay, I don't move around enough. How can I move around a bit more? How can I use my body and things like that? And, oh, it's, it's, it's so... It's, this is also why it's been so depressing in COVID. So much of my yeah. joy and delight was wrapped around comedy. And to have it just stop. Oh, which was a hard year last year and still hard. Now, now at least there's some Zoom shows. Yeah. But like the first February, March, April when there was nothing, oh, that was depressing.
0: Yeah, it must have been very hard. In in material now. What's your opinion on talking about COVID? as part of your material? as I know some comedians are going against it and are saying well, they forget about it, but others are saying but they want to make fun of this past 12 months.
1: For me, I think it's just, have you got the jokes, right? Again, yeah. it's like on any show, you want to do the best jokes you've written. Now, if you are someone whose your best joke you've written is about COVID, do it. If you're someone who's tried to write about COVID, but you're funnier complaining about your wife, complain about your wife, right? Yeah. So I have some great COVID routines, right? And to be fair, they're actually probably more about loneliness, right? Because I was in lockdown number one, totally alone for three months, right, right? But it's very much like a universal experience that's happened during COVID. And so I talk about that. So I won't just do a joke about a mask or something like that. There's a lot of superficial stuff, which is everyone's heard all the angles on the math, but there's some stuff which is like existential crises, which everyone's going through that I think it's very important to talk about. Also like I have the mental health of dealing with this kind of terrible situation is also one thing which uh, I'm trying to talk about. In fact, my show, what am I saying? My one man show, which I'm going to be touring this year is called Apocalypse Not Now. It's all about COVID and the idea of the end of the world is not now. You, we might think it is. It might feel like it sometimes, but this isn't the end, and that's the kind of underlying thing behind the show. And so it is. Oh no, no. I'm, i I. talk about COVID. No problem.
0: That's what I'm. What I'm thinking is, when is something so universal going to happen again?
1: When yes, You can actually make exactly. jokes that
0: relate to literally everyone.
1: Literally everyone, and not only that. Like it's such an extreme situation. Like it's like it's like you know people people talk about how you know veterans talking about a war at a time mm-hmm. when everybody was in the same kind of suffering there's only a few times thankfully where everybody gets into the same struggle and that's now and it's, it's uh it's such bizarre times such bizarre times like when you look at insanity in America like this you know, these capital riots, right? And these people yeah. storming the capital. It's really terrible. It's bizarre. But this wouldn't have happened without COVID, right? Because yeah, I think true. what COVID does is it takes stuff that's already bizarre and ramps it up a bit. Right. So everybody mm-hmm. who's depressed anyway is a little bit more depressed. Everybody paranoid is a little bit more paranoid. And it's just put an exclamation point on everything right and if you're lonely you're a little bit more lonely and it's all of that is that um it's created the circumstances for all sorts of bizarre things
0: i've never thought of it like that but i completely agree with you it's been sort of a a cut a, a catalyst isn't it really it's sped yes. up everyone's um mentality if you can call oh, it Oh yes
1: no 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 definitely there have been so many things that have happened where i'm like i don't I'm just what's going on yeah it's a, you, the world is weird right now. It's so oh, weird yeah. right now.
0: Oh, it really is. But have you found with all the lockdowns you had more time to focus on writing, stand-up writing, novels? Are you working yes. on a novel and a children's book? I'm at the working moment?
1: on a novel. It's going well now, but it, yeah. it was slow. I I didn't realise how much of almost an energy leech I am. right? Because <laughs> yeah. as much as... Writing is a solitary thing which you do alone. You need other people. So, what would usually be a day of mine is I'll go out, have a meal with my friends, mm-hmm. laugh, chat, and then go home and write for four hours. I didn't realize how much that chat with the friends helped the writing for four hours. Right. Because when you've just been alone, you, your writing isn't good. You, it's, it's, it's amazing how much the socialization is part of the writing process, even though, so early on, I was trying, I, I was doing a show every day. I had a streamed show, which I was doing, right? But it yeah. was really hard. It was much harder to write than it had ever been because I didn't have my usual um, inspiration. Now, I'm the sort of person who just gets, gets, gets the job done. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah. I'm like, if it used to take me two hours to write, and it now has to take me five hours, I'm gonna sit the five hours, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think that's you know African uh, you know work ethic. You just get it done, right? But it's been difficult. It's been very difficult. So I'm writing a, I'm writing a lot. I'm writing a sitcom. I'm writing a um, my new one man show, and I'm also writing a novel. But you know, it's it's all I'm good at. So it's what I do every day. Yeah. yeah.
0: So has that helped your experience in some ways? As I found that I quite enjoy creative writing, I quite enjoy writing, and that's something that has helped me calm myself, keep my mental health on a okay level throughout lockdown with yes. COVID.
1: Yes, yes. So the first f- three, four months, I did a show every day, like a stream yeah. show every day. Sometimes to an audience of 10 people, sometimes to an audience of 800. But I wasn't doing it for the crowd. I wasn't making any money. It was for sanity.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Because now I have a flatmate so I can have a human conversation. But when it had been like, I haven't talked to another human being 50 days. No, you know, in person. Yeah. Not, can't exu- I, I was literally going. bonk. It was so depressing. And it was just one of those things where I was like, and it also was a kind of depressing thing where you can't complain to other people because they're going through the same thing. Yeah. Like usually if you're depressed, like your girlfriend broke up with you, you can call up your friend and say, oh, my girlfriend broke up with you. They say, oh, so sorry. But what if you call them and say, oh, I'm lonely? Dan says, I'm lonely too. It's just, it's (laughs) it's not, it's not the same. It's not, it, it was very unique kind of struggle because everyone's going through it, which could make it easier, but I actually think it made it harder because you're not going through anything you're allowed to complain about.
0: Yeah, again, that's also half true. your
1: friends are going through worse. This was yeah. the thing is like, how can I complain? Someone who was a touring comedian who has savings and is kind of okay, while I have friends who have been more financially hit by it. How it's very hard to complain when you know that other people are doing the same thing worse, but doesn't invalidate the fact that you're depressed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, since, well, the Britain's Got Talent, I'm, I'm already saying you've t- toured the UK. Um, how many times did it? T- t- um, yes, yeah, so I did twice, two tours. So, yeah. I did two yeah. tours.
1: The second tour was, was interrupted by, um, uh, what's this, COVID. But I was, yeah. I've done a lot of television stuff like uh, QI and uh, I did the Royal Variety Show. Oh, yes. All of these things wouldn't have happened necessarily without Brins Got Talent. Now, I got the now from the comedian I am now, but it was the first step which led to these things. It was kind of like the catalyst. So again, this is also why I can't really complain because even during COVID, I was able to do some of these digital performances and stuff like that. But I think there's a difference with the physical struggle and the mental struggle. So I didn't have a physical struggle at all. But I had a mental one, which was just with the, the loneliness and the uncertainty.
0: Was it like doing the virtual stand-up gigs? When we talk about people like um, Michael Martin or Lee Evans, yeah. I can't imagine them fitting into a computer screen. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's 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 different. Comedians are better at it, and others are, are aren't. It's very interesting. It's also some comedians who were better on stage are bad at it. And some comedians who were okay at stage are really good at it. It's a different set of skills. It's almost more like being a radio host. Yeah. Right? Because in a comedy club, it's da-da, laugh, da laugh but laugh, but laugh. There's that rhythm that rarely exists on these Zoom shows. Yeah. It's more like you are like the radio host, you're funny, but you just have gotta keep going and just have got it. it's like a different pace, which I've adapted to, but I know a lot of comedians who are having a hard time adapting to it because it's not the same. It's not the same at all. Especially yeah. when you can't hear the audience. Like sometimes on Zoom, you can hear them, but sometimes you do a virtual show where it's just in your head. You've just got to keep talking.
0: <laughs> so how do you, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine doing a show when you can't hear anyone, anyway, particularly if I was watching, I would find it strange if I couldn't hear other people laughing as well.
1: I did 200 of them last yeah. year. I did Because I did a thing, which was the Corona cast comedy show, where I was just seated here, right? Yeah. The green screen came later. It was just me seated here talking, telling jokes, and looking at the chat, right? And in the chat, people would say, LOL, but I don't hear anything,
0: right? Yeah, that's
1: and again, it... I got better at it when I realized you're like an interesting radio show host. That's what you are. You're just telling a bunch of stories, but you do it. It's really interesting. It's like, um, I kind of like it in some ways. There's something really great about it in that you can talk about anything in a way that you couldn't talk about anything on stage. Because when you were on stage in a comedy club, if you don't get that laugh every 20 seconds, you feel you've say failed somehow, right? Yeah. But when it's just me chatting to whoever's tuned in, it's like a podcast. They are listening to me and they're interested in the funny, but they're also interested in this scared me. This made me, they're interested in whatever I throw at them. And uh, they've got better too, right? Yeah. Now, when you do digital shows, like I'm doing one today, you are in Zoom, people mm-hmm. are in a gallery, um, people now get like it's it's just we've now got the technology to you know I've I've got like a fancy like microphone yeah. we've got good cameras so everything's getting better but I remember back in March last year when it's just grainy bad sound it it didn't feel like a show
0: yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so what do you think about the virtual shows carrying on when things is back to the new normality. Do you think they'll still be a I thing? I think they
1: will. I think they'll yeah. still be a thing um, because they might end up being a thing which people just do for their fans. So I know that once I'm doing normal gigs, I'll still once a week do a thing. Hey, people who are on my fans, let's have a little, it might be a Q and A, it might not be a gig, but that kind of immediacy with your fans is actually quite amazing. Right. Um, I've, I've got I've actually got regulars who are now mm. in like a little community and have made friends with each other. And I know them by name. And, and you know, I'm, my Patreons, I, I know them. And it's just this kind of thing is there's a kind of um, fan immediacy. It's actually like science fiction because I'm in science fiction. It's yeah. like those conventions. Right because science fiction always had things like Star Trek conventions, Doctor Who conventions, and it would be fans who kind of get to know each other. And the star sort of knows them, you know what I mean? Like I saw a thing with George Takei was talking about and he was talking about a woman who he kind of got to know just because she used to come to every convention. So after doing 200 episodes, I know some of my fans really well. I know little things about their life and stuff. So I'll keep going. Yeah. What's that
0: like having that relationship with your fans?
1: It's great. It's really odd. Like, it's things like when I didn't, when I was doing it daily and I suddenly didn't do it, I got loads of messages. Are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? What happened? Are you okay? And then when two of my regulars stopped logging in, I was like, are, are they okay? I mean, you, it's sure. really funny how you start worrying about, it's 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 a friendship. It actually, uh, there's a guy, George, uh, who is one of my regulars, and he was saying that he doesn't even think he's a, a fan of mine at this point. He just thinks of me as a friend. And I was like, yeah, because there's been, been 200 episodes. There's a point where you just, we've chatted so often that you just pass that point of artist and fan to... Just the person who I kind of know.
0: Yeah, And that wouldn't have happened without COVID. Oh, no,
1: no, no, no. Oh, no, no. Because COVID is, is extremist, right? So yeah. we will keep, we'll be doing a Zoom, I'll do a Zoom show. And then at the end of the Zoom show, sometimes some of them will stick around and we just chat. That wouldn't happen at a gig. I mean, occasionally you'll go to a pub for a drink afterwards, but not the same people every day.
0: Yeah, that's, yeah, it's really inspiring. I would bet for your fans as well, it must be very special for them.
1: Yeah, I mean, like one of them, you know, had a pet die during COVID and everybody was talking about it and saying, oh, sorry. And it was really weird. It was like, I felt like I was in some kind of support group or something, yeah. it was, it's, it's, it's very unique. And as much as COVID has been terrible, it's also been very, um, it's been good in sort of teaching us certain priorities, I think, you know what yeah, I mean? like absolutely. I, I think I was career, 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 career person. And during COVID, I've been a bit more people.
0: Yeah. So it has taught us a lot. And now, I'm aware I don't want to take up too much of your time. So I'll ask you the only scripted question I ask all my guests. Okay, let's do it. And what advice would you give to my listeners? This can be literally any advice you want.
1: Okay. The advice I would give is... That's a tough one. Okay. If I was going to give advice to your listeners and your listeners aren't necessarily artistic. This is just advice for life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Anything.
1: I think the only advice I would say is take life less seriously. This is the advice from a comedian is that everything is worth laughing at, right? You are worth laughing. Like, just try to take life a bit less seriously. Like that. I think that's what's kept, ca- I've had some terrible things happen in my life. I've had some terrible periods and I think being able to laugh at it has kept me sane. And I'm so glad I'm a comedian. I even remember this, but you, you know, at the beginning of COVID when we were all calling each other and talking about this many people have died, this many people have died, yeah. it was all depressing. I am so glad that many of my friends are comedians, right? Cause when I called my mom or dad, it'd be really depressing, death, death, death. And then when I called a comedian, we would talk about it, but we'd be cracking jokes and we'd be laughing. And it's just everything, nothing's off limits. Laugh more. And uh particularly laugh at yourself.
0: I love that. I really do. As you know, as I said you off camera, I've got a stutter and yeah. I wrote jokes about my stutter because yeah, why not? And it's it why, why
1: not? Exactly. Exactly. And it's that thing of uh it's, it's very liberating when you take yourself a bit less seriously, I think. Yeah.
0: yeah. I think that's a cracking bit of advice that yeah, my listeners will really love. All I've got to say is thank you for coming on. I've really enjoyed thank this interview. Thank you for
1: interview. having me. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I wanted you on the show for a long time and here you are.
1: It's been a pleasure.
0: So thank you very much. Every now and then Thank you for listening to another episode of the School for Your Stories podcast. Without you, my incredible listeners, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. So I hope you know how much your support means to me. Just by tuning in, we are striking the stigma surrounding mental health. If you want more, you can find the School for your Stories on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and at theschoolforyourstories.com. Feel free to drop me an email at the underscore Schofield underscore stories at outlook.com. As always, this episode is brought to you in association with Stop Honing Back, a personal development charity for people who stutter, a charity I'm a part of, which is very close to my heart. So now all that's left for me to say is thank you for listening. I hope to speak to you again on another episode of the Schofield Stories (laughs) goodbye for now